0: This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. And I want to read from Acts chapter 8 at verse 5 through 13 to introduce the thoughts this morning. Acts 8 at verse 5. The Bible says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. To whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. This is not the passage we'll study today, but I wanted to read it in advance because I wanted you to notice on your map, you have one there on your chart, there's one on the screen. The Bible says in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and if you'll notice that black arrow, Samaria is north of Jerusalem, and usually when we don't go north we, we don't speak about going down. How many of you go down to Joplin? How many of you go down to Kansas City? We usually go up, don't we? When we travel north we go up we talk about going up north or down south. Jerusalem sits in an elevated position. It's higher ground than Samaria. And the Bible never makes a mistake geographically. So when it says that he went down to the city of Samaria, he went down in elevation even though he traveled north. And I want you to notice that Philip was having great success up there. When he went to Samaria, he began to work miracles. And in Jesus' name he cast out devils and and uh, it says that those taken with palsies, meaning paralyzed people, and those that were lame were healed. And he was preaching Christ. He baptized several men and women, and so he established the church there in Samaria. So he's having great success in this populated area. And then I want to turn now our attention on the back to verse 26 in Acts 8, because this is what we really want to study this morning. I wanted you to see that, that Philip's up here now north. At the city of Samaria, and down south of him is Jerusalem and the road that goes down to Gaza, a deserted area down there that will come into play in a minute. While he's there in Samaria, verse 26, the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia and eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, ready, saith the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. The book of Acts is a book of history that is written by Luke. Luke not only wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, but he wrote the book of Acts. And when Luke told the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, then he wrote Acts to tell us some of the history about the work of the Apostles and the early evangelists there in the church. And this is a very valuable book because embedded in the the book of Acts are conversion examples. Examples of how men and women were converted to Jesus under the preaching of the Apostles and those early evangelists. And these these examples are very profitable to us. They are profitable for many reasons. They are profitable to me. Because I can study these examples and I can see what preachers in the first century right after the Church was established, I can see what they preached to men and women that were in sin. And so I know what I ought to be preaching because I can study and I can see what sermons they used. That is very valuable to us who teach and preach. But there is another value to these examples, and that is that men and women who are in sin who need to be saved can look at these examples, they can study them, and they can can see what sinners were told to do in order to be saved and what they did to be saved. And then they can imitate what they did with full assurance that if they will do what these people did to become Christians that they can do the same thing and become a Christian in that very way. So there is profitability in these examples for every one of us. Now these examples by the way folks are infallibly correct. There is no error in them and really if you think about it they have passed twice most of them under the eye of the Holy Spirit. For you see some of the men that preached the sermons in these examples were getting inspiration directly from God as they preached and so it was an inspired message like Peter on the day of Pentecost. His message was coming straight from the Holy Spirit, and so as he preached Acts 2, he preached an inspired message. But see, Luke, who recorded what Peter preached there in Acts 2, was also inspired by the Holy Spirit. If you'll think about it, these examples then have passed twice under the eye of the Holy Spirit. They are infallible. There is no error in them. They cannot be mistaken. We can trust them, and I like that about them because they've got double inspiration in some cases, you might say. So we're going to study this example this morning and if what we find here today disagrees with any preacher in this area, any church, then none of us here are to blame for it. This example has been in this book about 2,000 years. None of us wrote it. We didn't originate it. It's been here for centuries before we ever came to earth. And so we are going to study it just like it is written and if it disagrees with somebody they will have to make their objection to Luke who wrote this record for us and certainly not to any of us because we are not responsible for the contents. We are just going to study it like it is written and look for the truth in it. I want to raise five questions this morning when we study this man's conversion, the story of this Ethiopian man, and you find them in your chart. We want to know first of all What did the angel of the Lord do? What was his work? What was his role in this man's conversion? What did the angel do? Secondly, we want to know what did the Holy Spirit do? What was his role in this conversion? Number three, what did the preacher, Philip, do? Number four, what did the eunuch, the man to be converted, do? And number five, what did the Lord do? Those five questions we want to raise and answer them, and when we've done that, we should have a very good detailed study of the story of this man's conversion. This is written for us to profit therefrom. And so let's open our hearts now as we study and think about the answers to these questions. First of all, let's take up the angel and ask this question. What did the angel of the Lord do? What was his role in this man's conversion? And the short answer to that is, he sent Philip to the work. He sent the preacher to the work that he was to do. But I want to put this question in the negative. I want you to think about it this way this morning. What did the angel not do? What did he not do? And the answer is, he did not go to the man to be converted. Now, the man to be converted is at Jerusalem down here, south of Samaria. Philip's up here in Samaria. And the angel never went and appeared to the sinner. He never spoke to him. He never gave him a vision. He never appeared in a dream. He never touched in any way the man to be converted. Why didn't the angel go? to the man to be converted. You know I've often thought about this, why doesn't God send angels to preach? Why does He put that burden off on men like me and on people like you to teach and preach to others? Why do we have to go? Why do we go overseas? Why do we cross the country back and forth trying to take the gospel to people? God's got millions of angels. Why doesn't He just turn them loose on the earth? Because they travel faster than the speed of life, they can just light, they can appear anywhere. Why doesn't He just send the angels out, let them contact every individual on earth? There's over 7 billion now, but they could cover that very quickly, very shortly, and let them go talk to every person and preach them the gospel. And that way the gospel would saturate the world very quickly. We wouldn't be out the trouble and the time and expense of having to evangelize. Why doesn't God do it that way? There's an answer in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, I want you to look at there on the back. Paul referred to the gospel as a treasure. And he said of the gospel, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. The gospel, this treasure, he says, we have it in earthen vessels, weak human beings like you and me, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of men. If angels appeared to us and preached, we might be prone to give them the glory because after all they are a higher form of life than we are. And we might talk about the time we were visited with a, a heavenly messenger and, and the Gospel was preached to it, but if it's a weak human being like me or you, then God gets the glory because we are nothing. So we have this treasure, the Gospel in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. see. And so God is not ordained that angels preach the Gospel, and that wasn't the role of this angel. Instead, he went to the preacher, and when he went to him, if you'll look at verse 26 of Acts 8, he had a very brief message. The angel said to Philip, Arise, go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. In other words, he sent the preacher to his work. So he sent him down here on this road between Jerusalem and Gaza. He was to leave Samaria and intersect that road down there. That's all he knew. That's all the angel told him. And uh, I want you to notice the effect upon Philip. The Bible says he arose and went. He didn't raise questions that some preachers might have raised. He didn't say to that angel, Why are you sending me down to this area? The Bible says this area was desert. Now, I don't want you to get the idea it's sand and cactus. It's not. That's not what desert means here. It means it's a deserted area. Philip has been working up here in the population center. He's... He's had a lot of people to preach to. He knows this is a wilderness area down here. He knows it's deserted. And he didn't tell the angel, now why are you asking me to leave this population and go down here to a place where there are no people? Why are you sending me there? There's no one lives here. He didn't raise that question. He did not say, as some preachers might have said, who's going to pay the bill? you're asking me to go south here, I may have to stop at an inn on the way, maybe a couple of nights. And I may have to pay for some lodging. Uh, I've got meals to buy. I probably have to go into a village and buy bread somewhere. Who's going to pay for that? He didn't raise those questions. Evidently, Philip believed that the Lord would direct him to the work that he needed to do. And not only that, he'd take care of his needs when he got there. And so the Bible says he arose and went. Now, when Philip arose and left there, that ends the work of the angel. And I want you to notice something. We, we ask, what is the role of the angel? His role was to just put the preacher in connection or on the way to the man to where he was to preach. He was uh, sent to the preacher to send him to the work, and that ends his role. And when the angel does that, he fades from this entire conversion. And when he's gone, I want you to notice that the man to be converted has not been touched. In fact, he doesn't even know that a preacher is being sent to him. He doesn't know that an angel has appeared to a preacher. He doesn't know any of this has happened. The angel has not touched in any way the man to be converted, the sinner. And that ends his role. See. All right, the second question then, what did the Holy Spirit do? The short answer is he spoke to Philip and told him what his work was to be. But I want to again put this in the negative and, and raise this question What did the Holy Spirit not do? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit never went to the man to be converted either, just like the angel. He talked to the preacher. You see, Philip got down on this road, and when he intersects the road, he doesn't know what he's to do from there because the angel just sent him down to this road between Jerusalem and Gaza. When he gets to the road, he doesn't know what he's to do. And so the Spirit speaks to him, see, to really point him in the work that he's to do. But he didn't do anything to the man to be converted. When I was a boy growing up uh, in Mansfield, we attended a denomination that believed in the direct operation of the Holy Spirit, and the preachers in those churches taught that God would send the Holy Spirit down on a person, and that Spirit would enter into them silently and mysteriously. and and work uh, miraculously in their heart and bring about a change in them and bring about the new birth. And I've seen preachers preach for an hour if you want to call it preaching. And then when they finished, they hadn't taught anybody anything, they began to pray for the Holy Spirit to come down in that assembly and and enter into the hearts of those that were in sin and, and bring a mysterious change in them. It was called the direct operation of the Spirit. But you see the Spirit doesn't operate apart from the Word in conversion. The Spirit always uses the Word of God, and that's why the Holy Spirit didn't go directly to the man here to be converted. If if the Holy Spirit operates apart from this Word, why didn't He go to the man to be converted? Why bother Philip? Why not leave him up in Samaria? And if the Holy Spirit uh, brings about a change in us directly apart from this Word, then the Holy Spirit can appear anywhere in an instant. Let Him go to all the sinners and appear to them and bring about a miraculous change in them, but the Spirit doesn't operate that way. He operates through the Scriptures, through the Word. Let's notice some Scripture about that in Ephesians 6 and 17 when Paul talked about taking the whole armor of God, he said, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. The Word of God's not the Holy Spirit, it's the sword of the Spirit, it's the instrument that He uses to prick our hearts and to bring about a change in you and I. Hebrews 4, verse 12, if you'll notice. The Bible says, For the Word of God is quick, that means living. The Word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Word of God then is like a sword, it's quick, it's living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two edged sword. It cuts both ways, you see, coming and going. It's quite an instrument and it's the sword of the Spirit. And that's what the Holy Spirit uses in converting us, you see. He takes this Word and it's implanted in our heart and it brings about a change. This Word when it's sown in the hearts of people will give them faith in Jesus Christ because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and we get faith by this Word. This Word, when sown in the heart, will induce repentance. It will tell man of God's love for him and motivate him to respond to God's goodness, or this Word will warn us of coming judgment and move us out of fear of what's coming in the future, of everlasting punishment to change our lives and to turn to God. All the motives and incentives to change our lives are embedded in this Word when it is preached, and that is what the Spirit uses. It is called His sword. We see this demonstrated clearly by Paul in some of his writings, also James and Peter. 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul started the church at Corinth, and uh, when he started that church he labored there at Corinth about 18 months. 18 months he stayed at Corinth. The church was firmly established there. Yet many men after Paul, like Apollos and and other people, had come in and preached. So Paul tells them in verse uh, 15 of chapter 4 that he's really their spiritual father, that he begat them with the gospel. Notice this uh, this passage. He said, "For though you have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers? For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel." The gospel is a seed. Picture it this way. When you, when you have a man and a woman, there's a seed implanted in the woman, and that's a conception. There'll be a there'll be a, a begattle there and a conception and a deliverance and a birth. In a, in a birth of a child, then there is a there's a, a begattle, a conception, a delivery, and that's done with a seed in man. In like manner, spiritually, the word is God's seed, and that's implanted in the heart. And that's what begets us. There is a begettle, there is a conception within us, and eventually that will bring forth a birth as we obey the gospel, a birth of water and the Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit uses to bring about the new birth. Though you have ten thousand instructors in Christ, Paul said, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. James 1.18. James said of His own will begat He us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. We're begotten by the word of truth. See that? That's the sword of the Spirit here. Peter puts it more clearly, 1 Peter 1, verse 22-23. He said, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Notice the Holy Spirit there. Obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now notice, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. What am I telling you? I'm telling you the Holy Spirit operates through the word in bringing about the new birth. And that's why the Spirit did not go directly to the man to be converted and preach to him. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate apart from this word in bringing about the new birth. He always operates through the scriptures. And that's why we're told to go preach the gospel to every creature. That's why He said, go teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, because the Spirit uses this word to bring about our conversion. So the Holy Spirit then, when Philip gets down on this road, see, he doesn't know what he's to do. So when he gets here, God's timing's incredible, isn't it? He looks up, and here comes a chariot down the road. He just happens to get to the road at the same time. A chariot's coming down the road with a man in it, and uh, so the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip. Look at Acts 8 and 29. Go near and join thyself to this chariot. That was a brief message because Philip didn't know what he was to do. The Holy Spirit's telling him, right here's your mission. Right here's why you're sent down to this deserted area, this man in this chariot. You go near and join yourself to this chariot. And that was the message of the Spirit. It was a lot like the angel. He was putting the preacher in connection with the man that was to be converted. That was his role here. And when the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip, that ended his direct role. And when he finished his work and spoke to Philip and sent him to visit this man, the man to be converted doesn't even know this has happened. Think about this a minute. Here's a fellow traveling along a road in a chariot, and he's got a preacher now on his trail. But he doesn't know an angel appeared to him, and he doesn't know the Holy Spirit spoke to him. He doesn't know any of that happened, he's never been contacted. And that ends the work of the Spirit, and when it does, the man to be converted has not even been touched yet, he's heard nothing. So we've seen an angel and the Holy Spirit, and their work has been to put this preacher in connection with the man to whom he's to preach, and that ends the direct role there of the Holy Spirit. And that leads us now to the third question that I want you to look at, and that that is this, what did the preacher do? What did Philip the Evangelist do? What was his role? The short answer is he preached Jesus, and I want to look at that, but first I want to look at something else. I want you to think about this man that's going to be preached to by this preacher, and let's, let's look at him for just a moment. If we had a full map, this Palestine here swings down, and right over in this area is Egypt. All this, the Nile Delta is right in here where it dumps into the Mediterranean, and the Nile flows then south because it runs north. And way down below the Nile down here on the continent of Africa is the country of Ethiopia, several, several hundred miles from Jerusalem. This may be the first black man to ever be converted, we're not told, but he is from Ethiopia, and it makes you wonder if he's not a convert to Judaism, kind of like Sammy Davis, Jr., you know, was not a descendant of Abraham, but he was a convert convert to Judaism. Sammy Davis was a Jew. And this man has, is traveling now in a chariot all the way up to Jerusalem, hundreds and hundreds of miles. Folks, he may have been traveling at four or five miles an hour. Now, if you're traveling several hundred miles, let's just take a hundred-mile trip at four miles an hour. What is that? several hours, isn't it, 20 hours or so? If you traveled, uh, you made five miles an hour and you had 100 miles to go, that's 20 20 hours. And uh, he's having to stop and rest and rest the oxen or whatever's pulling his chariot, horses or whatever. And so he's got to stop and eat and and, uh, water his animals along the way. There's no telling how long this journey took. Why is this man going to Jerusalem? Well, he's, he's probably feeling a, a sense of guilt for his sins. And at Jerusalem is where the Jews worship, and that's where animals are sacrificed. And this man needs a sacrifice for his sins. And it's been taught throughout the Old Testament that animals are to be sacrificed and their blood shed because God requires shedding of blood in order to forgive sins. The Bible tells us that blood is the life of the flesh and so the wages of sin is death and therefore death has got to occur and that is the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22, don't have this on your chart, almost all things the Bible says by the law are purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. Peter said that, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. From your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It takes blood in order to remit sins. And so this man's going to Jerusalem to worship God and probably to have sacrifices offered. And these will be sacrifices, though he doesn't know it, that really can't take away his sin. It's it's an astounding thing that this man would, would ride in this chariot all the way up to Jerusalem. He is a, also we're told he's a treasurer for the queen in Ethiopia. We would call him today the secretary of the treasury. He holds a high office in that country. Think how trustworthy this man must be. The queen gave him charge of all her treasury. He's evidently very honest and very dependable. And now he's made this long journey, and he's a man of nobility, a man who holds a high office. Did you notice what he's doing as as Philip joins up to him? He's riding along in this chariot. Now he's left Jerusalem, headed back home, and he's on this road, and he's sitting there reading scripture. Somebody says, well, what's so great about that? let me ask you to think about it this way. How many people that hold high office do you know in the church? you go into any congregation of the Lord's Church, how many congressmen and senators do you find there? How many cabinet officers? How many many CEOs of companies? How many people that hold high office, high positions that have a great authority do you find in the Church? You don't hardly find them, do you? And there is a reason for that, it is 1 Corinthians 26. Paul said this, For you see your calling, brethren, How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. You don't see politicians and people that hold high office in the church. He said, You see your calling, how that not many wise men after the flesh. A lot of highly educated, you see. They are too wise for God. See, they have got all the degrees, they have got the smarts, they have got the certificates hanging on the walls. And so uh, they, they don't need God's knowledge. They don't need the Scriptures. You don't see that many of them interested in it. Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. These are people that had rather be served by others as to serve God, see. And you just don't see them in the Lord's Church. It's a credit that this man, as high office as he holds, he is the treasurer for a queen. Is sitting there reading the Scriptures. And, and the Holy Spirit had this message to Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. The Bible says, Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. That's Isaiah. He's reading the book of Isaiah. And uh, let's notice, notice what the text says. Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? How many of you have read but didn't really understand sometimes what you're reading? Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip gets in the chariot with this fellow, and it moves on down the road. Now, in verse 32 and 33 here in Acts 8, we're told what this man was reading. (coughs) He was reading from Isaiah chapter 53, and and beloved he couldn't have been reading a better chapter in all the bible than this particular passage verse 32 the place of the scripture which he read was this here's the quote he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer so opened not his mouth in his humiliation his judgment was taken away and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth that's a quote out of Isaiah 53. That whole chapter is a prophecy about Jesus. And I put, the, I put the prophecy down. I put Isaiah 53, you'll notice there, verses 1 to 12. The whole chapter is about Jesus. And I'm not going to read this with you, but let me just let me observe a few things in it. Isaiah says, Lord, who hath, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see Him there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from Him. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep are gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all." He pictures Jesus as this green little root, this, this root out of a dry ground. He pictures the nation of Israel just pictured old parched dry ground that is busted open. We have all seen cracked soil where it is so dry, just cracks open. And out of all that dry nation, that old old dry soil of Israel, this beautiful little green thing, there's there's roots there and it springs up. There's life in this place. And that's Jesus. As a root out of a dry ground, He springs up out of the Jewish people. And Isaiah said that uh, He has no form nor comeliness. There wasn't anything outstanding about Jesus. He said, when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him nothing attractive about Jesus. He didn't look like the King of Kings. Born there and and laid in a manger when He was a child. As He grew into a man and went out to begin His ministry, He has no home. He has no occupation other than just preaching and traveling. He has no source of income. His clothing is probably not that good. He looks rather rough probably, rather homely. He's despised and rejected of men. And yet Isaiah pictures him as the one that bears our sins. And uh, that all of our transgressions have been laid on him. And he suffers and dies for those. That's where this man's reading. The problem is, he doesn't know what he's reading, he doesn't understand what the prophecy means. And so he asked Philip. When he said, Understandest thou what thou readest, he said, How how can I accept some man should guide me? And we read there where he was reading, and uh, that he was reading here out of Isaiah. And let's notice in verse 35, Philip was emphatically a gospel preacher. He wasn't a politician. He didn't take time to talk to this man about what he knew about politics, about politics, running the treasury for a queen. He didn't try to engage him in stuff like that and kind of build some influence with him. He was there with a message and he was there to preach it. And in verse 35, you see he's reading about somebody that's led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers opened not his mouth. And the eunuch doesn't know who that is. He asked Philip, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Who's Isaiah talking about here? That was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Is he talking about himself or some other man? Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. He took that same passage and showed him Isaiah's talking about the Messiah. And this Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. And he starts explaining that prophecy to him right there. He preached Jesus. What does it mean that he preached Jesus? And have you ever wondered when it says he preached unto him Jesus, what did he preach? What do you preach when you preach Jesus? Well, Philip knew. Look at Acts 8 and verse 5 again. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. He was used to preaching Jesus. Verse 12 in Acts 8 When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. He was used to preaching Jesus. What do you do when you preach Jesus? Do you say, Jesus, 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 like some of these fellows on television? That's not preaching Jesus. If I preached to you George Washington, what would I preach? I'd tell you about George. I'd probably tell you about his mother and father, I'd tell you where he was born. I'd tell you a little bit about his raising and his youth some things that he accomplished as a man. I might talk to you about his death and where he's buried. I'd tell you all about George Washington. When you preach Jesus, you tell all about Jesus. That's what you do. And the greatest example of that perhaps in Scripture is in Acts 2. Let's read Acts 2 there at verse 22 and listen to Peter. He's the first man that preached Jesus after His death and resurrection. The day of Pentecost, fifty days, After the Lord's death and resurrection, he preached the first gospel sermon, the gospel for the first time. Three thousand people were saved that day. What did he preach when he preached Jesus? Look at verse 22 in Acts 2, Peter said, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves also know. The first thing he preached when he preached Jesus was he, he was a man approved of God with miracles, wonders, and signs. He preached his life in miracles. And then he goes on in his sermon, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There's his death. Verse 24, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. He preached the resurrection. See, he's preached his life and miracles, his death for sins, his resurrection. He will next go get a prophecy out of David and talk about his resurrection and proof of it. He will preach that this Jesus, when He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sat down on God's right hand, was crowned Lord and Christ, and he will preach that that, if you'll look at verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified both Lord and Christ. So what do you do when you preach Jesus? You preach his life and miracles, his death, burial and resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, being crowned as king, and that he's Lord and Christ. And if you'll notice verse 36 there in Acts 8, let all the house of Israel or Acts 2, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now look at verse 37. The Bible says, now when they heard this, when they heard Peter preaching Jesus, they were pricked in their heart, they were convicted. They said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They want to be saved. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, listen, this is what Philip preached. When he preached Jesus, he preached to him that day in that chariot the life and miracles of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension to heaven, that he's been crowned Lord in Christ. And when they heard that message, they were convicted, they were pricked in their heart, they believed. And they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that's what you preach when you preach Jesus. And if you wonder what Philip preached when he preached unto him Jesus, there's the message. Life and miracles, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, coronation, that he's Lord in Christ, and when people are convicted and believe it, you tell them to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. That's what he taught this man. So there's the work of the evangelist Philip then. His job was to preach Jesus to this man in sin, and he did. Now let's look at the man himself and raise the question, what did this eunuch do? What was his role in his conversion? Well, obviously, he confessed his faith in Jesus, and he obeyed the Lord in baptism. But I want to look at the record here given by Luke. Uh, Look at Acts 8 and 36. The Bible says, As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Where did he learn about baptism? He preached unto him Jesus. When you preach Jesus, you preach baptism in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. That's the only way he would have known. I told you this was not a desert. This is not cactus and sand. It was deserted. There's water here. It's just a wilderness. So, as they're traveling along and he's preached to Jesus to him, they come across a certain place of water and the eunuch said, Here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? And uh, I'm glad some of the modern day preachers weren't there on that occasion. Look, look, if you will, what they might have told this man. Here's a man requesting baptism and It's just him and a preacher out in the wilderness. There's no church here. Some of these preachers today would have told this man, Now look, I can't baptize you right here. Uh, You're going to have to go before a congregation. We'll have to go to a church here, and you need to tell your experience of salvation. You need to show how you've been saved, and then they'll vote on you. And if you've got a good-sounding conversion story, They'll take a vote, and if they agree that you've really been saved, then we'll baptize you. Philip didn't know any of that nonsense. He knew this man wasn't saved. And now this man's requesting baptism for the forgiveness of his sins. And Philip didn't know anything about voting on him, and there's no church out here in the wilderness. It's whoever's traveling with this eunuch plus Philip, and that's it. Philip's the only Christian. And so he just proceeded to ask Him the divinely appointed question. He said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's verse 37. There is His belief and there is His confession. And upon that confession Philip baptized Him. Now the rest of these scriptures are on the front. Come around on your front side to the fourth column, excuse me, The third column from the left, and uh, look about a third of the way down under point C and you'll see Acts 8 and 38. Let's look at the Holy Spirit's language here. It says that Philip baptized Him, but I want to look at that a minute with you. He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and He baptized him. Let's, Let's notice that for just a moment. Look at the language of the Holy Spirit. It's almost like the, the Holy Spirit was looking down the stream of time and seeing what men would do to the act of baptism, how sprinkling and pouring of water would come along and not immersion. And if you look at the language of the Holy Spirit, baptism's immersion. Look at this. It says that uh, they, look at the plural pronoun, they went down both into the water. Have you ever gone into the water without going down? Try that sometime when you take a bath. The Holy Spirit didn't have to use the word down. He could have said they they went into the water. But he's putting this beyond misunderstanding. They went down, notice, both into the water. And he repeats it again, both. And then he names them, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Look at the language. Here's your pronoun They went down, both into the water, both, and then He names him Philip and the eunuch, and He baptized him. And I want you to notice those words, He baptized him. When you baptize, you baptize a person. When you read about baptism in the Bible, it's always baptism of a person. What do I mean by that? When you sprinkle water, if you sprinkle for baptism, You're not sprinkling a person, you're sprinkling water, aren't you? To sprinkle means to scatter in drops. That's what we do when we sprinkle. But if you sprinkle a person, you'd scatter the person in drops. You never sprinkle a person. You can't sprinkle a person, you sprinkle water. When you pour, you pour water. You can't pour a person. To pour means to turn out into a stream, and you can't turn a person out in a stream. You don't pour people. What do you do to people? You immerse them. He baptized him. He didn't baptize water. He didn't sprinkle water. He didn't pour water, and you can't immerse water. He baptized him, and that means he immersed him. And that's the mode of baptism here. This man was immersed. Baptism is always a burial. He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So this is what the eunuch did, now we know his role. His role was to hear the Gospel preached, he believed it, he repented of his sins, he confessed his faith in Jesus, and he obeyed the Lord in baptism. And now that leaves the final question for us to answer. What did the Lord do? We saw what the angel did, what the preacher did, we saw what the Holy Spirit did, we've seen uh, seen what the eunuch himself did, And now we raise the question, what did the Lord do? And I'm going to suggest to you three things the Lord did. Somebody says, well, I don't see the Lord very much in this conversion. Not much is said about Him. The Lord's been in this all along. We read about the Lord in uh, verse 26 when this thing started. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise. You see, the Lord sent the angel. And so the Lord did things for this man, and the first thing is that the Lord saved him, forgave him of his sins. This man heard the gospel, he believed it, he repented, he confessed his faith, he was baptized, and he did that, went through that process for the purpose of being saved. And this is what Jesus commanded. Look at Mark 16:16 there on the front. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what He did. He had the Gospel preached, he believed it, and he was baptized, the Lord saved him. What else did the Lord do for this man? He gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gave him the Holy Spirit as a gift. He did not give him miraculous power. He did not give him the gifts of the Spirit, he gave him the Holy Spirit as a gift. And that's Acts 2.38, read it with me. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This man was given the Holy Spirit as a gift. Anytime a person's baptized, they're saved, and they're given the Spirit. Look, op- look in the right column, the last one, Romans 8 and 9, up there in the top right. Paul said, But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his every Christian has the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you have miraculous gifts, miraculous power. Having the Spirit is one thing, having the power of the Spirit is another thing. Having the Holy Spirit as a gift is one thing, and having the gifts of the Spirit is a completely different thing. This man was given the Spirit. Number three, the Lord added this man to the church. How do we know that? Because when a person's saved, when they're baptized, they're automatically added to the church. What we do to be saved is also what puts us in the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, there on Pentecost day, when Peter preached that great sermon, the Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people that day. Were saved and added to the church. Look at verse 47, the Bible says of those three thousand, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Every day when somebody was saved, God adds them to the church. Now there wasn't a church in this wilderness. This man was not baptized into a local church as a lot of people are. He was baptized into the one body, the Lord's church everywhere in the world that it exists. His name was written in the book of life. That's where really where church membership takes place. Church membership takes place in Heaven, not on Earth. The Lord writes your name in the book of life. He adds you to the church so that anywhere you assemble with God's people, you're assembling with the church. You're in the church 24 hours a day. We're never out of it. We're not always assembled, but we're always in the church no matter where we're at. We're in that one body. So here's what the Lord did, He saved this man, gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then added him to the church. He does that every time. The conclusion of this is this, as we think about what happened next. Acts 8 and 39, if you'll read with me. When they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more. And he, the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing." This man went on his way rejoicing. I don't have verse 40 here, but if you'll turn around to the back side and look at verse 40, that second scripture there at the very end of it. The Bible says that Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Let's look at 39 and 40 again. When they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Philip was just transported by the Holy Spirit through the air, and the Lord dropped him off over here. The Spirit did at a place called Azotus, and it says that he preached in all the cities then till he came to Caesarea. He just went up this coastline preaching. He he had to probably walk down to this place to get there to preach. But he had pretty good transportation when he left. The Spirit took him through the air, dropped him over at Azotus. His mission's accomplished. Imagine when they come up out of the water, the eunuch looks around, the preacher's gone. He's been transported out of there, his mission's done. His job was to preach to this man and baptize him for the remission of sins, and that's what he did. And now he's removed from the scene and dropped off over to Azotus. And Philip preached all the way up the coastline of the Mediterranean until he got to Caesarea. We don't read of Philip again in the book of Acts till we get to chapter 21. We lose him at Acts 8 and 40 and we pick him up again in Acts chapter 21. But let's look at the eunuch. When they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing, and why wouldn't he rejoice? before he met up with Philip you see he didn't know anything about Jesus he came to Jerusalem to have animals offered in sacrifice for his sins blood from animals that would not take his sin away and now on his way back home he's had the gospel preached to him and now he knows about Jesus and now he knows about the blood that really will pay the debt for his sins and he's learned about Jesus and he's obeyed him in baptism And he's been saved and he's been given the Spirit and he's been added to the church. Why wouldn't he go on his way rejoicing? Traveling all the way back now to Ethiopia. A saved man. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening and God bless.